0: Well, as we've been talking about, Ephesians is a book divided into two halves. The first half is all about who we are in Christ, that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. It's about all that he's done for us, and it's just an overdose of the love of God. And then the back half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are all about how to live in response to that love. And so as we've been saying again and again, you've got to understand the love God has for you before you try and live out a response to that. Otherwise, it'll just be a set of lifeless rules. Last week, we ended in chapter 5 with verse 21 where Paul instructed us to live submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And this week, we're going to look at three different ways that that plays out in real life. We're going to see what it looks like to submit to one another in the fear of God in marriage, in the parent-child relationship, and in the employer-employee relationship. So starting off, the husband and wife relationship. We actually talked about this portion of Ephesians all the way back in February when we did our marriage and relationship series. We're gonna try and go through it a bit quicker today for that reason, take a look from a couple of different angles, but if you wanna get into that more thoroughly, pick up a copy of the marriage and relationship series out in the Welcome Center, and we are gonna jump in at verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, And he is the savior of the body. He is the savior of the body. And the first thing I want you to put on your outline, just remember this. This is not an issue of importance in the marriage relationship. It's an issue of roles. It's an issue of roles. God is not saying the husband is more important than the wife. He's saying I'm a God of order and because I am a God of order, I have a structure because without structure, without vision, things collapse and there's chaos. There has to be a leader and in God's design, the leader of the home and the family is the husband. Scripture tells us that we are Imago Dei. Everybody say Imago Dei. You just learned an awesome term. Imago Dei is simply the idea that we are made in the image of God. It means the image of God. And when we were created as men and women, the Trinity got together and said, let us make man and woman in our image. And so the idea is that both men and women reflect different characteristics of God. God is reflected in both the masculine and the feminine, and God contains both. So both are equal reflections of the character of God, just different aspects of the character of God. And the role he's chosen for the husband, you can put this on your outline too, is that of leader-pastor of the family. Not just leader, but pastor. Not just dictator but pastor, caregiver, spiritual caregiver. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. This is really important. I want you to notice that even Jesus Christ lived out his life in submission to the Father. Even Jesus Christ Took that role of submission. And and so here's what's important about that. Knowing that, that takes away any right we might think we have to say, well, I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna be in submission to somebody else. He says, wives be in submission to your husband. Husbands be in submission to Christ. Christ is in submission to the Father. So if Jesus can do it, we don't really have a right to say, well, that's too hard. I mean, I'm kind of my own person. We're not really on the same level as Jesus Christ. And if he can do it, he has removed any claim we have to object to that command from him. In Philippians 2, it says this. It says you must have, and this is probably our core text today, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, we're not, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, the Father, and died a criminal's death on the cross. And we are not greater than Jesus. So wives, submit to the leadership of your husbands. Husbands, submit to the leadership of Christ That's how God wants things organized. That's how he wants things done. And in verse 24, it says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Again, Paul reminds us that Jesus is the example, and he's not asking any of us to do anything that Jesus hasn't done perfectly. He's not asking us to do anything that Jesus hasn't done. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, it says this. It says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So here's what it's saying. It's saying, ladies, if you find yourself married to a non-believer, know this. Nobody's ever been nagged into the kingdom of heaven, right? Nobody's ever been nagged into the kingdom of heaven. Proverbs, it says, uh, better to sleep on the roof of your house than inside your house with a nagging wife. Is what it says in Proverbs. No one's ever been guilt tripped into the kingdom of God, ever. What it's saying is it's saying, ladies, honor your husbands even when they don't deserve it. Scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's grace that leads us to repentance. So it says, shower grace on your husband. Honor him even when he doesn't deserve honor. And when it says in fear, it doesn't mean in fear of your husband. It means in fear of the Lord. In fear of the Lord. Eventually, he's going to be won over by your conduct. By the way you interact with him. He's going to realize he doesn't deserve it. Sometimes when you just pour kindness upon somebody who doesn't deserve it, they reach a breaking point sooner or later and they just can't take it anymore. Why are you doing this? And that's when the opportunity opens up. Paul goes on and he says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. A, a few things. Paul is not advocating don't wear makeup, don't ever shave your legs. It's not what Paul is saying at all. Philosophically, I would say if the barn needs painting, you should paint the barn. But uh, I'll probably just cut that out of the recording. But uh, Paul's not saying that. He's saying don't let that be all there is to you. He's saying don't let that be all there is to you. Don't be the kind of person where someone says, wow, you're beautiful. And when they've finished talking to you and had a conversation and somebody says, what do you think about them? All they can say is she's pretty. She's, She's got a pretty face. What do you think of her personality? Well, she's very pretty. She is very, very pretty. I stand by my comments. She says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. He says, take care of yourself. Be beautiful on the outside, but let your inner beauty be the greatest part of you, the better part of you and when he's speaking about a gentle spirit he's just talking about that contentment that you can have especially for those wives who are married to a non-believing husband don't nag your husband to death don't guilt trip him to death don't be a thorn in his side just be gentle be content yourself and God will work through that remember that you're not God you're not the Holy Spirit you let God take care of that issue But here's the second thing that I want you to notice. Sarah, Abraham's wife in Christianity, tends to get a pretty bad rap among Christians. Abraham is known as the father of faith. Not the father of the faith, but the father of faith. Scripture says he was a friend of God. It says Abraham believed he was so full of faith that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So in other words, his faith in God is what saved him even before Jesus died on the cross. So Abraham gets this super reputation. Sarah is most well-known for laughing when an angel shows up and says, you're gonna have a baby. And she's incredibly old. Abraham is like 100. She just laughs out loud at a prophecy from God. And she's struck dumb for a little while. She can't speak for a while by the angel. And so we know her as doubting Sarah. But this is so interesting. Here, Peter, in 1 Peter, says Sarah is the model for woman of what it looks like to be a respectful, honoring, submissive wife. And he says, you want to be her daughters. You want to be considered her daughters by living like her. And it says something very interesting. It says, when you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So what's it, what's it talking about? I think it's talking about something very, very interesting where Sarah modeled this. As I said, a- Abraham has, has this great reputation And here's what happens. Abraham has just received a prophecy from God. Boom, Abraham, I've chosen you. I'm gonna do a work through you. I'm gonna give you all this land from here to here and here to here. Now go walk out. Wherever you put your feet, I'll give you the land. So go check out all the land I've given you. Abraham is living on this promise, has every reason to be full of faith. Everywhere he goes, he just miraculously has the land. He's building this massive empire. He's the wealthiest man on earth at this point, just accumulating wealth everywhere he goes. It's pretty much all he's doing is walking around surveying his wealth. Yeah, I own that mountain, that one, that valley, that, 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 that. Very, very nice, you know? That's all he's doing. So he should be in a place where he's full of faith. And then in Genesis 12, something really interesting happens. A a famine hits the land, and they have to go to Egypt to get food, just as, if you'll remember, Joseph's family had to go to Egypt to get food during a famine as well. Abraham's family has to go. And Mr. Abraham, Mr. Father of the faith, Father Abraham, gives us this fantastic story in Genesis 12. I'll read it to you. Starting in verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, her name hadn't been changed to Sarah yet, his wife, this is a classy conversation, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance, Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Classy, right? That's what every woman wants in a man. Facing danger, just tell them you're my sister, and uh, it'll go well for me. Okay, that's sort of like the manly man every woman dreams about, right? So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So here's what's happened. Pharaoh has seen Sarai... And he said, Me likey. And he's taken her, basically, and he's gonna add her to his harem, basically, as one of his wives, part of the package. And so he's giving all these gifts to Abraham because she's supposed to be his sister. It's kind of like a dowry, is what he's doing. And when you're the king, you can kind of do that. You can kind of say, I like that, I'll take that, here's some compensation. And Abraham's just going, this is fantastic. Look at all this stuff I've got. This is incredible. This is going so well. And so you can kind of get the picture that Sarah is up, you know, looking out the window. And Abraham's there saying, hey, hey, Sarah. Look at all this stuff. Isn't this great? This is going so well. And she's just sitting there thinking, wow, fantastic. Man of my dreams right there. There's Abraham been wandering around the desert with all his cattle. He's probably covered in dust. We know he, he's pretty much never, ever shaved. And then Pharaoh shows up. He probably finds himself at the gym on a regular basis. You know, he's adorned in gold, wearing a gold Speedo, which they seem to do at the time. And he sort of struts into the room and uh, he's got a glass of wine. And hello. She's looking at him. And she's looking at Abraham. She's looking at him. She's looking at Abraham, and she had to be thinking, it would be pretty sweet to settle down in a palace with the Pharaoh, instead of walking around with Captain Cowardice down there. (laughs) Maybe I'll just stay here. She must have had that thought, but we know from what happens, she doesn't. And we can deduce that she was just praying. She's just crying out to God. God, you've you got to do something here. My husband isn't going to do anything. He's too busy enjoying all his new toys. And so this is what happens. It says, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go away. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So he got to keep the gifts. And he's thinking, this is amazing how this has worked out. Clearly the Lord is with me. And then here's what's amazing. In Genesis 20. He does the same thing again. And in fact, we find out that he has a a standing understanding with his wife. Anytime they go to hostile territory, she's going to pretend that she's his sister. She's his sister. What a classy guy, right? But what we see is we see Sarah honoring a man who was a coward in that moment. Honoring a man with no faith, who wasn't even honoring his own wife. She's still honored him. She still honored him. And that's the model. Peter's saying, be like Sarah, be like Sarah. Let the Lord move on your behalf. Don't always ask yourself the question, is my husband worthy of respect? Because there's gonna be lots of days when he's not. No matter how good you are as a husband, men, we all know deep down, we're not worthy of respect every day. We're just not. But Peter says, be like Sarah and honor your husbands, no matter what. No matter what. That's the biblical injunction. And there are certain situations where it's not an option to stay in a marriage, where there's abuse or something like that, and it's not an option. That's not what we're talking about. But 99% of the time, the Lord wants to do a work through a faithful woman who's married to a man who might not be very deserving of honor and respect. God wants to do a work there. It is a fact that men crave respect. We talked about this in February. A man feels emasculated when he doesn't get respect. And this is on your outline. Respect is what makes a man feel like a man. It's what makes him feel loved. It does. You can give your husband all the hugs and all the physical benefits in the world, but if he does not feel respected, he will not feel loved. God built that into every man. So what makes a woman feel like a woman? In verse 25 of Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, you can underline this word, love your wives. Love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And this is on your outlines too. Love is what makes a woman feel like a woman. This is important. Women want to feel loved. That word is really, really important. She doesn't just want to be loved. She wants to feel loved. And the reason that word is important is because if you just say, love your wives, and you just stop at that thought, then you're going to define how you're going to do that. You're going to say, of course I love my wife. I go to work every day. I work hard so that I can support her, take care of her. I do all this. The question isn't, do you love your wife? The real question is, does she feel loved by you? And so often we have to ask our wives that question, do you feel loved? Because if they don't feel loved, then we're failing at the whole task because that is the whole point. That is the whole point. And our example, men, is Jesus loving the church. And Jesus loved the church so much that he literally gave up his life for her. He laid down his life for her. And I always like to say for for any woman who has an objection to the biblical model, I don't think there's a woman on earth who would have a problem following the lead of a man who would love her the way that Jesus loved the church. A man who would lay down his life for her, lay down his whole life, not just in death, but in living, lay down his life for the sake of his wife and for her benefit. I think that's a very, very easy lead to follow. And then whatever it costs us to love her is the price that we must gladly pay. What, whatever dreams, whatever hobbies we need to give up, whatever financial sacrifices we need to make, whatever career moves we need to make, whatever schedule adjustments we need to make, we're called to do that in order to love our wives. We're called to love them above our careers, above our hobbies, above all of those things. We're called to lay down our lives. And God's word tells us that it's our job as the pastor of our wives to help set her apart for Jesus, to help her, her love Jesus above all else. And the example is Jesus loving the church by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So here's what that's saying. Water is always a picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so he says, wash her with the Holy Spirit by the word of God, by the word. So he's saying, men, you have the responsibility in your family, in your marriage, to make sure that you have a gospel-centered, God's word-centered marriage. You have that responsibility to bring God's word into your home, into your daily life. You carry that. You don't get to just sit back and wait for the wife to say, hey, let's pray about this. You don't get to sit back and say, hey, hey, we don't really talk about God a whole lot in our home. He's saying, "Men, you're the pastors of your home. Take the lead. Take the lead. That's on you. That's what it means to be the leader. So he's saying, encourage your wife with God's word wash her in the word of God, fill her with the Holy Spirit by getting her centered on Christ, getting her centered on Christ. And, and you'll notice that God has built a greater degree of sensitivity into woman than he has into men. I don't know if any of you have observed this. You know, it's very subtle, but uh, you can observe it if you pay close attention, that women are generally more sensitive than men are. And they're also more sensitive to spiritual things. They really, really are. And so a spiritual heaviness can have a profound effect on a woman that sometimes it doesn't on a man because it, it just goes right over our heads. We're just not paying that much attention. But a woman can discern little changes in the spiritual atmosphere in your home, in your relationship, in all these things. And Scripture is saying, make sure, men, that you're encouraging your own wives. And it's so easy as a man to be an encouragement to everybody except your wife. Everybody except your wife. Man, you'll pray for a stranger before you'll pray for your spouse sometimes. You'll share God's word with a stranger before you'll share it with your spouse. Paul is saying, man, you are the pastor of your home. You carry the responsibility for the spiritual climate of your home. That's on you, lead. In John 17, we see Jesus praying for his disciples and and he's praying to the Father for the future leaders of the church. So, So this is Jesus praying for his bride, modeling for us as husbands how we should be praying for our wives. And in verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth and your word is truth. Your word is truth. We're gonna find out next week when we wrap up Ephesians that the word of God is described as the sword in the armor of God. It is a weapon for defense and for offense. And so what he's saying is he's saying, listen, men, if you are not men of the word, you are ill-equipped to lead your wife, to lead your family, to lead your children. You are not equipped. You're a man going to battle without a sword. We've got to be men of the word that are able to stand the gap on the behalf of our families, stand the gap on the behalf of our wives, and know what the word of God says, and be able to stand upon it. Verse 27 back in Ephesians 5, it says that he, Jesus, might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church. So he's he's washing the church in his word. He's filling us with his spirit so that his bride, the church, can be presented to him, Jesus, as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Men, don't, don't forget, men, that we have our wives for a time. We have them for a time. They're ultimately going to return to Jesus because they ultimately belong to Jesus. So what he's saying is the same way that Jesus prepares his church to be his bride. He's saying, husbands, listen, you need to prepare your wives for Jesus. You need to prepare them for Jesus and have that mindset that this is a daughter of God that you've been given care of and oversight of, remember that, remember that. She ultimately belongs to Jesus. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And and I love this, because Paul just taps into a universal constant, which is selfishness. (laughs) It's a universal constant, right? He's like, listen, okay, let me break it down for you. Just love your wife the way that you love yourself. Whoa, 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 that is a hard, hard command, hard command. He goes on and he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then he quotes Genesis 2:24: For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great, great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul says that's love defined for husbands. Love your wives the way that you love yourself. He says you love yourself. You're already great at it. Just do that same thing for your wife. You're a professional at loving yourself. So when you walk in your house and you just think, I'm gonna sit down because I'm tired and I shouldn't have to do anything right now. He says, the way you love yourself in that moment, love your wife the same way. Look at her and ask yourself, is there anything that she needs? Love her the way that you love yourself. In verse 33, he says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is what submitting to one another in the fear of God looks like in marriage If you do this in marriage, I promise you won't have marital issues. And I pretty much promise as well that if you have marital issues, one or both of you in the relationship is not doing this. You're not submitting to one another. I've shared this before, but I know marriage counselors who when a couple walks in, they just ask one question right away and they just say, okay, which one of you isn't submitting to the other in the fear of the Lord? Who is it? It's the only reason you're here. One of you or both of you isn't doing that. And I know guys who've never been wrong (laughs) when they say that. And it comes out when one spouse begins saying of the other, well, they should be doing this. And what they're really saying is, well, the issue isn't, isn't whether or not I'm submitting. The issue is that they're not submitting to me. That's the issue. And someone says, well, 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 if you're submitting to them, then you won't really have that problem. You won't really have that problem. It's kind of like you don't go to a birthday and give someone a gift and then say, now you give me a gift. You don't do that. That's not the whole point. Paul says you only have responsibility for yourself. You only have responsibility for yourself. You don't submit to them so that they will submit to you. You submit to them so that God can flow through you in that relationship and lead the other person to that right place, but the deadlocks that happen in marriage, man, how often are the deadlocks in relationships based around, I'll submit to you if you submit to me, no, I'll submit to you if you submit to me, and you have that deadlock, that's the marriage deadlock, so I always like to say this, men, when it's deadlocked, we go first, it's what it means to be the leader, you don't just get to be the leader when you're at the pizza buffet and want to go first, you have to be the leader as well there's a crisis in your marriage. You have to break the deadlock, just as Jesus broke the deadlock over the issue of sin. And now Paul's gonna shift gears as we head into chapter six, and he's gonna talk about the child-parent relationship. Verse one, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And that promise is found in Exodus twenty twelve and Deuteronomy five sixteen. It's the only promise, it's the only command that's connected with a promise of long life and happy life and life going well with you. Colossians three twenty says it like this children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. So let, let's get this clear. For us who are parents and everyone who's gonna be a parent in here one day, your your children honoring you as their parents pleases the Lord. It's what He wants in black and white, and it will result in blessing for them. When your children are young, you will ultimately decide what behavior is and is not acceptable. It would be ridiculous for me to say, My three year old chooses not to honor me. It's not really their choice, it's really your choice as the parent to decide what's acceptable, to decide whether your children will be pleasing to the Lord, whether they will receive blessings from the Lord. Parents have a responsibility to their children to lead them into God's blessing. You can fill that in on your outline. Parents have a responsibility to their children to lead them into God's blessing. You have a responsibility to lead them into God's blessing. As they get older, you'll truthfully have less and less control as their their natural independence increases. But in those early years, you will decide what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. This is a parental responsibility in those early years, far more than it is the child's responsibility. In verse 4, he goes on and he says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, which just means anger, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Discouraged. So what does it mean to provoke your children? It simply means to load them down with expectations. To load them down with expectations. To live vicariously through them. If you see... The hairstyles that my boys have, you might deduce that I am living vicariously through my young boys. I might need to work on that. I'm definitely living vicariously through them. Don't waste your hair. (laughs) Bask in its glory. So, We are told that fathers provoking their children can produce two outcomes. One is wrath, that's anger, and the other is discouragement. Discouragement. How many of us have issues that we're still dealing with today as the result of parents that had expectations of us or hopes that we would be something other than what we were created to be? Isn't that unreal? You don't really grow out of that. That cuts deep. You you deal with those issues for the rest of your life. Paul puts forth something completely different. He says, listen, guys, your children were created by God with purpose and destiny. And this is the key. God has a plan for their lives. God. God has a plan for your lives. My old pastor used to have a saying that had great insight into this dynamic. He would always say, Jesus loves you and everyone else has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what he would say. Everyone else has a wonderful plan for your life. But when you think about it as believers, what we believe is that every single one of our children, every child is made with a purpose and a destiny that is chosen by God before they were even conceived. And so we go to war with God's plan for our own children when we say, thank you for the suggestion, God, but I'd rather see them become this. He says, listen, you are putting anger into your child. You are putting discouragement into your child by expecting them to be something that they are not. I know my dad always hoped that I would be an academic and I had a praying mom, so she was a discerning mom. She's one of these moms who could just look at me and she's like, he's not gonna be an academic. <laughs> you know, she just knew. And so she prayed and prayed and when I was around middle school, I think my dad started realizing hey, he's probably not gonna go and pursue a doctorate of anything. And, and I was released of that expectation, and we, and we had the mentality now of, okay, I'm gifted with language, I, I'm gifted with, with vision, and, and things like that, but when it comes to math, I am awful. This isn't in my notes, so I'm going to tell you guys a story. This is one of my favorite stories about math. So I was homeschooled in the 11th grade, and in the 11th grade, as you know, here in Canada, you can do math for the last time in the 11th grade. You don't actually have to do it in the 12th grade. So in the 11th grade, I did intro to math you know, which is like math for dummies. Um, and so as, as a homeschool student, you, you had to sort of do this whole module for a semester. Then you'd go into a testing center and you'd do an exam. 50% was the pass mark. So I went in, this is my final exam for Intro to Math 11, the glorious end of math forever for me, and I got a 41 the first time I did it. Now you're allowed two more attempts And if you fail the third one, you have to redo the whole module again. So I went the second time and I got a 46. But I had just got a Palm Pilot. Do you remember when these things were like only black and white and were like bigger than your phone? Everyone was like, What is that thing? You know, it's like it's got my calendar in it. It's the size of a notebook and it's got my calendar in it. Technology is amazing. You know, it's like a notebook, yes, but it's $350. So I had one of these. And, and the teachers didn't even understand what I could do yet. So for my third and final attempt, I took every formula and put it into my PDA right there. And I took my PDA with me, had it right next to me, and cheated all the way through the entire exam. And I got a 51. So, <laughs> so I say, what's the moral of the story? It's a really good thing that I cheated. That's the moral of the story. So I, and, uh, basically, it's, it's good though, because I cheated, but I promise I would never do anything with the knowledge I pretended to have. So I walked away from math forever. But I just knew, I just knew I'm never, ever, ever going to use this. I'm never going to use this. And I struggled even in the 12th grade homeschooling because I remember in geography saying, I'm never going to map a mountain range. Why am I learning topography? You know, what, why am I doing this? And it's so easy for us as parents to get a vision for our kids that didn't come from God. What we need to be doing as parents is praying, God, would you show me what you've created my child to be, what you've created them to do. Show me. We should be praying for that from before they are even born, when your kids are two or three. Think about the pain and the frustration you could save yourself and your child if you had a vision when they were three years old of what God called them to be. It changes everything 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 I know parents who've done this with their children and even in school it's caused them to say you need to do your best but there's some of these subjects you just need to get them done we know you're never ever going to do anything with this so you just need to be faithful and get this done but there's not the burden on them of like well you've got to be great at this because you're going to be a scientist and if you're going to be a scientist you got to know chemistry and there's a burden that's put on the kid and it develops anger and it develops resentment And it develops discouragement. The wise father recognizes that he is not God. And therefore his children are not to be molded, they're to be unfolded. In other words, we we have the privilege of watching our children, prayerfully observing them, and seeing what the Lord has already put into them. And we get to partner with God in the process of bringing that to light. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7, this, this is part of what is known as the Shema. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. God told the Hebrews, he said, he said, listen, I want you to talk about me. I want you to talk about loving me when you eat, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed. I want this to be a part of your life all the time, all the time. So practically in your home, what, is it, what does this look like? For, for us, I'll just share some examples. My kids don't listen to the Teletubbies. When they listen to CDs, they don't listen to, who are the other ones, Wes? You know them, Red Car, Hot Potato, Hot Potato. Who are those guys? The Wiggles. Boom. Okay. I could have gone through the whole catalog right there. So they don't listen to the Wiggles when they get in their room. My kids listen to music that is centered around Christ. You know why? Because when they're done and they're walking around the house later in the day, that's what they're singing subconsciously. Yeah, and I don't want my kids just walking around singing some ridiculous, mundane, idiotic lyrics that somebody else decided should be in my kid's head. I want them having Christ-centered thoughts. So they're speaking about him throughout the day. And it's not a fear thing. It's not like if they listen to this music, they're gonna get, you know, contaminated. It's the issue of what do I want pumping through their subconscious? I want the blessings of Jesus and the love of Christ permeating their consciousness. It's having things in your home, even those ridiculous signs that you see in some people's homes where you're like, really, did you really need to knit that Bible verse and frame it? But listen... Your kids grow up seeing that every single day. Every single day. They will remember that for the rest of their lives. And so it's putting little stuff all over your house that creates these triggers that reminds you about who God is. It's having a, a family devotion at the end of dinner or even during dinner, just reading them a Bible story, talking about God. We have our kids as we go around and pray. Every kid prays and says one thing that they're thankful for that day. Just those little things creating this culture where you are talking about God all the time. He's just in your life. He's a part of your lives. And we wanna get much better at it. I don't wanna paint ourselves as the ideal family because we're really, really not. But we try to do things that center our children's lives around Christ. Even in their behavior, the model is Jesus. It's not don't do that because it's bad. It's hey, don't do that. Remember, Jesus treated us this way and so we treat people this way, like Jesus did try to center everything around Jesus Christ. And you notice that God's word assigns responsibility to the husbands. He doesn't say, men, tell your wives to make sure that your home is centered around Christ. Because that's what we want to do as men. We want to be like, hey, I think we should be more Christ-centered in our home. Okay, well, I'm done. He says, listen, make sure it happens. You carry that responsibility, men. You carry that responsibility. As parents, we have an enormous responsibility and this is huge, the way we teach our children to interact with us will form their paradigm of how they should interact with their heavenly father. I'll say that again. The way we teach our children to interact with us will form their paradigm of how they should interact with their heavenly father. There are so many people who just struggle with the idea of a loving heavenly father because they don't even have the reference point of a loving earthly father. The Holy Spirit can do a work, but they have have to get through this whole paradigm that's been built into them of what a father is. This is why obedience matters. Do you want your children to fight and resist God? Then let it slide when they fight and resist you. Just let it slide. And that'll be their paradigm of how you interact with a father. Do you want your children to submit to the Lord and experience the blessings of obedience to him? then teach them to obey you. They need to understand that their obedience to you is for their benefit. They need to understand, hey, you you know what? It's not that the road is a really fun place to play. Right? This is for your benefit. And in fact, I expect obedience because I don't always have time to explain to you why it's for your benefit. You don't even always need to know why it's for your benefit. But you do need to know you can trust me because I'm your dad. You can trust me, it's for your benefit. If you want to develop that mindset in your children, then teach your children to honor you, teach them to obey you. If you want to teach them to doubt every single one of God's promises, you want to teach them to fight and resist God, just let it slide when they don't believe you. Let it slide when they resist you. Let it slide when they fight you. And it'll transfer into their relationship with God. I promise it'll transfer into their relationship with God. The way we teach our children to interact with us will form their paradigm of how they should interact with their Heavenly Father. And all of these relationships that Paul's talking about are designed to help us understand our relationship with Him, with the Heavenly Father. Our children's relationships with us should be based on our Heavenly Father's relationship with us. It should be modeled in how we interact with our children as well. Now Paul finally looks at the employer-employee relationship. One of the great problems we have to overcome in our first world context is this issue of, of leadership. And Most of us have never lived under a monarchy or a dictatorship. We, we've lived in democracies. And so the one problem with democracy is that it's not really an invention of God. This might shock you, but every time a democracy appears in the Bible, it's a bad thing it's a bad thing. When the people of Israel say even, hey, we we want a king. And God said, well, I'm your king. No, 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 we want a man king. Didn't work out well. Anytime the people got together and got in charge, it did not work out well. The Laodicean church, the last day's church that appears in the book of Revelation, that's the church that's run by the collective, all the people. It's a total democracy. That's the church Jesus says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you are neither, I vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is into monarchies. He is the king of kings. And so when you live under a monarchy, you have a different mindset. You hear things like, it is decreed that the king says, let this be done. Whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant because the king has decreed it, right? Right? But when you're raised in a democracy, you tend to sort of get the idea of, well, I didn't, I didn't vote for that. Let's call a referendum or, or something like that, you know, to decide this. And God would say, listen, listen that, that's not the way I do business. In a, in a monarchy, because the king says so, is a perfectly valid reason for anything, right? Perfectly valid reason for anything. And so sometimes we struggle with the idea of Jesus as king because we don't have a reference point. We think more like Jesus as president, it's, like, it's not the same thing. It's Jesus as king. That's why in scripture, we, we see phrases like, do this because this is God's will for you. And in our mindset, we go, well, well, that's not really a reason. God says, it is a reason. It's my will for you. I'm God. I'm the king of kings. But Paul says, listen, that, that's sufficient. This is my will for you. But often we want, we want to debate God. So as God and Paul talk about the employer-employee relationships, Paul talks a lot about honor and he talks about giving honor to employers who don't deserve it. Again, this is this running theme. And when you've come from a monarchy, you understand the idea that man, this position deserves honor. Who's occupying the position is almost irrelevant. They're the king. They're the king. And God is very into the idea of, while they may not be an honorable person, the position that they occupy, the office that they hold is worthy of respect. God says every leader is put there by God for his purposes. If he didn't want him there, he'd get him out. But he's doing something in every situation. And so we'll see that verse 5 of Paul's instructions in chapter 6 opens with the word bondservant. And and in most cases, a bondservant was simply a slave. It's a variation of a slave. So keep in mind, when Paul is saying, hey, honor your employers, he's saying this to people who are even slaves. Most of us get paid in our jobs, something, right? And so if we're saying, I just can't, I just can't honor my boss, you don't know what he's like. Remember, Paul's talking to people who are slaves, What's the worst thing your boss ever did to you? Did he ever enslave you? Literally? Literally? Paul is talking to people who have been enslaved by their employers. And he says, you need to honor your employer. Talk about having a bitterness issue to work through, right? Verse 5 begins, it says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling again toward God in sincerity of heart as to Christ not with eye service so so not just when the boss is looking as men pleasers but as bond servants of Christ don't view yourself as a slave to your employer view yourself as a slave to Christ work to Christ because Christ is always watching don't just be a good worker when your boss is around doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And this is an important truth. The, the eternal rewards that await us in heaven have nothing to do with our social standing on earth. Nothing. Nothing. It's all about honoring God over ourselves. And in our work, we can do that whether we are a slave or the richest man in the world. So by Paul's logic, the system he's presenting, the slave can accumulate for himself treasures in heaven while his boss who is wealthy and owns him on this earth might accumulate nothing because it's all about honoring God above yourself. That's how God's economy works. He's not impressed with our social standing. Even when we're working for a boss who's a jerk, we talked about this last week, we can redeem our work by doing it for the Lord instead of that person. There's probably a principle here too that says, listen, if you're waiting for another human being to make you enjoy your job, to make it fulfilling, you're probably gonna be waiting a very long time. You need to find your fulfillment in doing it unto the Lord And letting the Lord work through your gifts, knowing that you're being pleasing to him. And then you can take that weight off of your employer. And even if he's a jerk, you can be satisfied. When you think about it, isn't that a great way to be content in life? Why would you tie your happiness to someone who's a miserable jerk? I don't know about you, but I don't want my happiness tied to that person. I'd rather be tied to Christ and be satisfied and content in every circumstance. But when our work is redeemed, when it's done for Christ, it becomes sacred and it reflects well on our Heavenly Father because we're His kids. In Titus 2, it says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In 1 Peter 2 it says servants be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle but also to the harsh for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief suffering wrongfully. And Paul wraps up the section with a word for employers bosses managers supervisors. Verse 9 he says and you masters do the same things to them giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. He says, listen, when you've been given leadership and authority over somebody, remember God has authority over you. He has authority over you and you will answer for how you treat his kids that he's put under your care. What Paul is talking about is so radical. He's saying bosses treat your employees as though you were their servant. Serve them, serve them, and reveal Jesus to them by the way that you honor them. Such a a radical, foreign concept. But in God's economy, you don't get to treat people one way when you're working for them and get to treat people another way when they're working for you. It's this whole concept of Imago Dei, that we're all made in the image of God, and we're all worthy of respect and honor Everybody else deserves that, not because they're a great person, but because they're made in the image of God. They are valuable to him. We don't treat other people based on their value to us. We treat other people based on their value to the Lord. That's how he wants us to interact with one another. This is your last fill-in. Simply, you are obligated to treat others the way that Jesus would treat them. Jesus looks at every single person and says, He says, I remember when I created you. I remember when I created you. That's the affection that he looks at each person with. That's how Jesus sees people. So he says, honor others, submit to them, respect them, serve them, because they belong to Jesus. So ultimately, if you're a wife today, we'd ask her, are you submitting to your husband's leadership? If you're a husband, are are you loving your wife? Are you laying down your life for her? And are you submitting to the leadership of Christ? If you're a parent, are you training your children to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you setting them up to be blessed? Are you setting them up to be cursed? If you're an employee, are you working for your boss or are you working for Jesus? Are you, by your actions, revealing Jesus to your boss, by honoring them even when they don't deserve it? If you're an employer, are you serving your employees or just taking from them? They need to see Jesus in you. We're gonna wrap up by reading Philippians 2, five through eight one more time. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross.